Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I'm going to share my screen so we can take a look at the text. I'm backing up a little bit from where the actual um, triennial starts because it doesn't make sense exactly where it starts. So we're going to start just a few verses before where it says we're supposed to start because otherwise we're kind of like, we're not sure what's going on. So like I said, we're flying through the book of Exodus. It feels really fast this year. Uh, and so last, uh, what happened last week? <laughs> it's like, we're like, boom, 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 flying through. It was the last plague last week. Um, and the commandment to take a, a lamb and that it's going to be the Paschal lamb because God is fixing to, as we say in the South, um, God is fixing to jump over the houses of the Israelites. So we talked a little bit about that last week. Now the Israelites have left Egypt. Uh, Paro has thrown them out after the horror of the slaying of the firstborn. Uh, Pharaoh throws them out and, um, and they quote unquote borrow uh, things of great value from the Egyptians on their way out. And so um, we are now, uh, they are, they are running, you know, away. And here's, here we are at verse 10 and, um, and the moments of our focus this morning. So this is a moment where Paro is drawing near and the Israelites, um, you know, lift up their eyes and behold, Egypt is coming after them. And they were majorly afraid, right? And that's an appropriate response to Pharaoh's army coming up behind you uh, is, a, you know, a ragtag group of slaves. It's an appropriate response is, and they were very afraid. They were very afraid. And here we've seen this term a lot. So, and they, what did they do? They lifted up their voices and... Itzaku, they let out a tzaka, they let out a big cry like this. And we've heard this term over and over and over. And most of you by now know what a tzaka does, right? Tzaka is the cry of the oppressed. It's the cry of the vulnerable and the weak and the innocent uh, and who are suffering uh, oppression. And so that is what happens here. They, they cry out again to Yodhei and they say to Moses, is it for a want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us taking us out of Egypt, right? So very much a typical Jewish response. Uh, turn on the leaders <laughs> when you're afraid and, you, and you're vulnerable and you're terrified Turn on your leaders, blame them, and do it with sarcasm, right? So was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die, right? So sarcasm, you know, the, the you know, thing that is the solace of, of um, angry people. Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians, 
for it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, we don't have that scene. They are referencing something that does not appear in the Torah. So either it's a tradition we've lost, we've lost that scene where they say this to Moshe in Egypt, or they never said it, and they're saying they said it, like we told you so, when they never did. Um, or, uh, you know, it's just not referenced because it's not important till now. We, we don't know. But we don't have this scene where they said to Moshe, let us be and let us serve the Egyptians. But that's their instinct right now. They're afraid and their instinct is to either reiterate or to make up that they ever iterated, you know, let us stay in Egypt. It's at least safe. It's at least a sure thing. It's at least a sure bet. Um, we know that life. You know, we know how to make it in a life of slavery. We, we don't know this business of being out here with no protection and Pharaoh and his army are our enemy and they're coming for us. Vayomer Moshe el Ha'am. And Moshe is very clearly speaking to the people. It says it right there. And you'll see why I'm stressing that in a minute. Vayomer Moshe el Ha'am. And Moshe says to the people, Altira'u, don't be afraid. Hityatzvu, remember from Nitzavim, that idea of a pillar standing, right? This is not standing like regular standing. This is Hityatzvu. Be like a pillar, you know, like plant yourselves or ooh, and see at Yeshuat Adonai and see the salvation of yud that God is going to do for you today. For Egypt that you see today, you will never see them again forever. Adolam, ever. Adonai yilachem lachem ve'atem tacharishun. Yud hei vav will fight for you. And y'all, shut up. <laughs> so this is what Moshe says to the people. The very next verse, which is where we're supposed to start this morning. The very next verse says, Vayomer Adonai el Moshe. God speaks to Moshe and says, Matitzak elai, daber b'nei Yisrael vayisa'u. God speaks to Moshe and says, what, what is this that you're crying out to me? Tell the people to move. Let them go forward. So it's a little bit of a bizarre shift here. Moshe is talking to the people. God talks to Moshe saying, why are you calling out to me? We don't have Moshe calling out to God. We don't have Moshe asking God for help. We don't have Moshe praying here. So what is God's response all about? We can talk about that. Moshe does seem to suggest that God is going to do this for them. God is going to fight on their behalf. They don't have to worry about Paro and his army. God seems to flip that around. And God seems to be saying, not so fast. What do you mean I'm going to fight for them? What is this that you're crying out to me? Tell the people, speak to the people and let them move forward. And you, Mr. Busy, raise up your rod and your arm over the sea and, and tear it, right? Tear it open. 
And the people will come into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The rabbis spend a lot of time on this verse. They spend a lot of time writing a lot of Midrash and a lot of Kabbalah, a lot of stuff about if it's Yam, if it's sea, how can it be Yabasha? How can it be dry ground? It can't be both. How can they come into the midst of the sea by Yabasha on dry ground? That makes no sense. It's either they're coming into the midst of the sea or it's they're, you know, between the walls of water on dry ground. So the rabbis have a field day with that stuff. You can think to yourself where they might go. But I, mean, but I says God, I'm going to strengthen the heart of Egypt and by so that they go in after them and Paro and all of his um, uh, soldiers and, and his horse chariots and stuff um, are going to go in. And this is how the Egyptians will know. George has a, a little bit of a problem with this God, I think. This is how the Egyptians will know I am Yudhevavhei. And here's the word kavod, right? But but in a verb form. Behikavdi, like I will gain kavod. I will gain glory, respect. Through Paro and his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who had been going ahead of the Israelite army now moved and followed behind them. And the pillar of cloud shifted from in front of them and took up a place behind them. And it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus, there was the cloud with the darkness and it cast a spell upon the night so that no one could come near the other all through the night. Right. This is reminiscent of the plague of darkness. Then Moshe held out his arm over the sea and Yudhevavhe drove back the sea with a strong east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split and the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came in pursuit after them into the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen, at the morning watch, Yudhevavhe looked down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He locked the wheels of their chariot so that they moved forward with difficulty, um, which is also, I love this, look, verse 25, the word for like making it difficult to move is bichvedut. We just had God achieving kavod, right? Glory through all of this. And how do the chariots, what is the word used for the chariots having difficulty moving? They are kaved. They are heavy. Kaved, kavod, same shoresh, same root. Things do not have glory unless they matter, right? They must have matter. They must matter in the world. So, so in Hebrew, they're weighty, right? Things are weighty if they're important and glorious and worthy of respect. It's also the word for respect. So you, only that which is weighty in our lives 
is deserving. Only that which is kaved is deserving of kavod. Absolutely related in Hebrew. And so the Torah uses it in this wonderful, you know, Torah as literature uses this, this word again here um, to say, this is what happens to the chariots. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites for yod Vavhei is fighting for them against Egypt. And, Mos- and God says to Moshe, hold out your arm over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses held out his arm over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal state and the Egyptians fled at its approach. But God hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus did Yudhe deliver Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea. Al Sfatayam, on the lip of the sea. Okay. So Moshe tells the people to calm down. Don't be afraid. God is going to fight for you. And God answers, Ma, what? What are you crying out to me for? Tell them, Daber el Israel, tell them to move forward. One of my favorite moments. One of my favorite moments in Torah. Why? Because so often it is assumed that Yudhe as we have God in the Torah, is, is, and especially in this narrative, in the plague narrative, um, you know, is the deliverer and is the one who's fighting and is the one who's schmicing Egypt. And that's all true. But it's a more nuanced, this is a nuance that's brought into the story that I just love. That God, God hears Moshe telling the people, stand fast. Don't be afraid. God is going to fight for you. Y'all just need to shut up and watch. And God answers Moshe, no, no, I I can't make this happen. I can't make the water part. They have to move forward. So with Pharaoh behind them, it's impossible to go back. But looking forward, they're sure they're going to drown. They're sure what's ahead of them is going to kill them. They're positive about that. And so this is the moment where God tells the truth. They have to move. They have to go. If they don't, there's nothing I can do. Don't bother crying out to me. Tell the people to move forward. Because that's the only way we know this in our lives. We know this. That what's behind us, if we try to go back to that, it's going to kill us for sure. We'll be cut to ribbons for sure. We can't go back. It's impossible. They know that. They know they can't turn around and go back that way because here come the chariots. But what, what's in front of us often feels like it's going to swamp us. Feels like for sure we'll drown. It, it's too big. And there's no way forward that's evident. But this is the moment. This is one of, for me, of one of the most existential moments of truth in Torah. God says, Vayisa'u. They have to move forward. 
until they put their feet in that water, nothing can open up. Until they take those steps, it cannot open. A path cannot open. So, uh, Linda, you're asking, is there another version of the sea parting? Why? Can you unmute and tell us what, what's missing for you here? Well, at, at first, um, we, were, we read that overnight the waters parted. That's what we just read, yes? Yes. But as I'm typing, you're, you're talking about the fact that the water didn't part until the people moved forward, and that's what I was thinking about Right. So it's not, it's not giving us, you know, sequential. I guess, I guess not. Right. It's I not, it's not telling us all the it. details. I'm saying, I'm suggesting God's words are true. Right. It's not until they move that there's a possibility that something's going to open up that wasn't there before. A, okay. a yabasha, a path on dry ground that wasn't there before. Okay that that's true in our, in our world and in our lives is that unless and until we move, if you don't apply for the job at KI in the Palisades, sitting in Duluth, that can't open up. A world living here, being here can't open up. It doesn't exist. Why wouldn't you when it's 30 degrees below zero? (laughs) Right? Smart, smart. Uh, as my father would say, a Yiddish cup, right? Mm. So um, did I ever tell you the joke that my father said, you do conversions, right, Amy? I'm like, oh, well, yeah, dad, I do conversions. He said, do, yeah, they have to go all the way under. You know that. I'm like, yes, dad, I know that. <laughs> and he says, no, like all the way under three times. I'm like, I know how to do a conversion. I was young rabbi defensive. I know how to do a conversion. He's like, because if they don't go all the way under, Amy, they're yeah. going to be a Jew with a Goyish cup. <laughs> I'm like, really, Dad? Really? So anyway, um, so <laughs> have you been to Israel? <laughs> and he said, <laughs> right, right, right. So Bubby knew my father and can hear him telling that joke, I'm sure. Um, okay, so um, so this is the truth. We we have to move forward, and it's not instinctive it's not intuitive it takes god telling moshe that even it's not instinctive to moshe he's waiting for it to open right like why would why would i expect them to move until it's open till there's a path that's clear and safe uh because it doesn't work that way god seems to be saying that would be lovely yes i agree but it doesn't work that way they have to move forward. All right. So I want to read you. I have so many great commentaries. It's so unbelievable. So many people choose to write um, about this moment. So uh, let me read to you from uh, Larry Kushner's book of Kabbalah called uh, The River of Light. He says this story, this moment in the story teaches that part of Every experience of transformation involves a second confrontation, even more frightening than the one before. The coming up once again of the enemy whom we were sure we had destroyed. The return of the repressed. Three steps forward, but two back. The Midrash suggests that there were four groups there at the edge of the sea. 
All right. So the Midrash is coming to explain the scene we just saw. And the Midrash suggests each part of the statement from God or from Moshe addresses a different group. Each group, each part of us received an answer according to its intention. Some of us wanted to throw ourselves into the sea, but we're told, have no fear. Stand by and witness the deliverance, which Yudhei will work for you today. Others chose to surrender and return to the slave pits, but were assured the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Still others wanted to stand and do battle. They were calmed with the promise, Yudhei will battle for you. And the last group who simply raised their voices in prayer were silenced. Hold your peace. That word we saw that means shut up. Only one of the 600,000, says the Midrash, Nachshon ben Aminadav walked forward into what was to become a path through the waters. And for him alone and the rest of us, by the merit of his singleness of purpose, was the sea split. Perhaps one of the most insightful descriptions of existential panic ever recorded. Here at the edge with the enemy who was also of us rising up to destroy us. So this wonderful uh, recounting by Larry Kushner, uh, Rabbi Larry Kushner, of, of how the Midrash understands this moment, that when the enemy, which is also us, when the Pharaoh within starts to wage war, right, to come at us, what do we do? Well, we have different parts of us and at different times, maybe, or maybe we have one that tends to be our habit. Um, some just want to hurl themselves into the sea. Like, I don't know. I give up. Sometimes, right, we, we want to just go back to slavery because we know that. We know how to do that. That's familiar to us. So we, we just want to go back until we keep picking habitual responses. We pick habitual ways of thinking about things or doing things, whether it's, eat, you know, we eat chocolate, we go shopping, we take a nap, we take a drink, we, you know, whatever it is, we have habitual responses when Paro raises his sword, <laughs> right, in our lives. Um, and some, right, want to fight. There's parts of us that we, we want to fight. We want a good fight. We'll pick a fight. If we have to ever done that, I mean, I can't imagine doing that, you know, but like, right. So sometimes we're looking for a fight because we just want to put it out there. We want to fight something out there when it's really, of course, in here. This is where it originates. This is what's really going on is the fight in here. But we want to put it out there because that feels way better. If I can make it somebody else's fault, if I can find fault, if I can pick on something else, that is way more comfortable often than turning within and doing what needs to be done. And sometimes, uh, right, we cry out to God, fix it. Somebody, mommy, somebody, fix it. So the Midrash understands this as a moment of existential um, stuff coming up um, and that these are habitual responses 
and that Moshe, what Moshe says and what God says are each a response to each one of those ways that, that we tend to handle uh, moments like that. I love that. Rabbi, it's reminiscent of the four sons in the Haggadah, which really could be four sides of each of us. So it's kind of interesting. The rabbis picked up on that same way of viewing personal uh, reactions. Nice. Nice. Very true. Like, you know, they get it. The rabbis actually get it that, you know, that there are different responses and different times to different kinds of situations in our lives. Sometimes it's just the mood we're in. Sometimes it's a developmental phase we're in. And there are different kinds of people. Like some people tend towards, let me pick a fight. And some people tend towards, please, God, make it okay. And then I promise I'll go to shul every Shabbos. I promise, I promise, I promise. Right. So Sometimes there's just different people and different personalities and the different ways that they tend to respond. Sometimes it's all of those um, within us. As in, Linda was saying something about, as in, tell the people to move forward before the waters part. All right. So Rami Shapiro, Moses tells the people to stand fast. God tells them to get moving. Is this an example of Moses misreading God? or misdirecting the people. Torah is showing us the two stages of action, he writes. As long as we are listening only to our fear, we must stand fast. Fear will mislead and misdirect us. We will do anything, anything to get rid of this feeling. And indeed, the people were willing to return to slavery. So first, stand fast. And see just what it is you are dealing with. Once you have seen clearly, seen what is rather than what your feelings are portraying, then you can journey forth. Because only then will you know which way to go. Torah reverses the adage, don't just stand there, do something. Torah says, first, just stand there. See what really needs doing, then do it. Right. So for for Rabbi Rami Shapiro, again, this is all the, the Midrash. Everybody lifts this moment up as being way more than about right fleeing Pharaoh and slavery. This is life. This is being a human. And they all take this as a teaching about how to do that. And so Rami says the, the, the point of saying stand fast and don't be afraid is if you're only coming out of fear, you can't pick a right response. It's not possible. Stand fast and look, see what's really happening. It doesn't mean you can't feel fear, but at least see what's really happening. Then you can respond. You can deal with your fear. You can do whatever needs to happen for you to have the courage to take the next steps forward. If you're only coming out of fear, if everything is fear, you can't make good decisions. And you won't know which way to go, <laughs> right? So, um, which I think is so true. Stand fast, hold still. This is what we do in mindfulness practice. This is what we do together in meditation every Friday. This is spiritual grown-uphood, <laughs> is stand fast, hold your seat, as the Buddhist nun Pima Chodron teaches, hold your seat, you can do this. You can face your fear. You can feel your fear. Good. Okay. And then see what you're really dealing with. Look, 
assess what we're really dealing with. Rami also in another commentary unpacks all of this like amazingly. Um, it's, a, it's a longer commentary, so I won't go uh, into all of it. But he says, the people were trapped, the sea before them, the armies of Egypt behind them. Once again, Moses stands between Pharaoh and water, between the fearful and violent ego and the water course way, the way of humility, of seeking the lowest place, of yielding and yet overcoming. Moses has a choice here. He could make war against the Egyptians. He could unleash centuries of pent-up Hebrew anger against their oppressors. He could pit his army against Pharaoh's army, his ego against the ego of Egypt. This is the way most men operate. But he chooses another course. Moshe tells the people, right, he's, he's telling them to calm down and hold fast. And he said, but they're not ready to embrace Moshe's way, nor are they ready to fight. They will simply succumb and return to slavery. So Moshe takes them to the next level, the level of silence. This is where he tells them, shh, God will fight for you. What does this mean? It means that it is useless to pit ego against ego. In the struggle against the Lord of the narrow place of slavery, meaning Pharaoh, it is best to surrender to the higher power of self rather than give in to the lower power of selfishness. You cannot defeat yourself. You are that self. So he's talking, of course, about the Pharaoh within. The superior way is to surrender, not to Pharaoh, but to God. How do you surrender? Keep silent. Be quiet. When the voice of Pharaoh rises within you, urging you to return to the enslavement of Egypt, keep silent. When doubts about your ability to be free haunt you, keep silent. If you engage them, you will lose. They are louder, older, and more rooted in your psyche than the arguments you can muster against them. When you keep silent in the face of Pharaoh, Pharaoh does not know what to do. He cannot attack you because you do not resist. He cannot argue because you're not willing to converse. You are not ignoring. You are simply refusing to take the bait. As the thoughts and feelings arise in you, generated by the story you tell yourself about yourself, you simply refuse to take the bait. You watch them rise and watch them fade away. They never disappear altogether. But your urge to grasp and hold and run with them weakens over time. Eventually, you can simply keep silent and let God fight for you. That is to say, let your greater self embrace the narrow self in the healing grace of love. Come on, my psycho, my psychoanalyst. Come on. Is that not the best? How do we deal with the Lord of the narrow place? Keep quiet. Assess. Deal with your fear. Address your fear. And Rami says in another place, there's two kinds of fear. Fear that freezes us and fear that motivates us. And it's about holding the one until um, we can get to the other. I want to read from Aviva Zorenberg. So she's talking about the people's um, fear 
right? That, that they're afraid. Um, and she says, at the very least, the people cry out of primal fear. And they were very afraid. And Moses said, do not be afraid. That she's quoting 14, 10 and 13, the verses we just read. Moses responds by speaking of vision, right? See the deliverance which God will work for you today. For the way you see the Egyptians today, you will never see them again. Instead of reassuring them about the objective outcome of the present crisis, Moshe speaks of their personal perspective. Fear is born of a way of seeing. A changed way of seeing will change their feeling and thinking. It is this level of experience that the word ma, what, that God uses, addresses. Pharaoh recognizes an unspeakable loss. So that she's going off on another um, tangent, but Moses responds to the challenge of adversary narratives by speaking of fear and personal vision. So she's saying that this is, this is still, yes, a deep teaching on truth. And that is when we are afraid, it's about changing how we see things. And again, it doesn't mean we can't feel fear, but, but, but that can't be all we're experiencing or or we're going to mess up. We can't make good choices that way in responding to adversity, in responding to moments of terror. And so she says, Moshe and God are saying, see, you have to change how you see. How you see the Egyptians, says the Torah text, you'll never see them that way again. If you do this, if you can remain silent and look, assess, see what happens, You'll never see them the same way again. When we have the courage to actually look at what's going on, to actually look at what we're so afraid of, when we can sit with that in silence and hold it and be honest and trust ourselves to be able to hold it, then we see things differently. What I saw as the enemy is a reflection possibly of something going on in me that I don't want to look at. And I can see the situation differently. And then I can respond. Otherwise, we're just reacting all over the place. And that usually doesn't work out so well. I don't know about in y'all's life, but in my experience, (laughs) it has not gone well when all I'm doing is reacting and, and not responding. And Torah understands that. Torah gets it that they're afraid, but, but we have to hold that. We have to manage that so that then we can see differently. We can see the Egyptians differently. And once we do that, it sets up its own pattern, its own cycle of not seeing them exactly that way ever again. And that means also the Pharaoh within, the Pharaoh, the part of me that's Pharaoh. If I can learn to hold my seat, if I can learn to shut up and be silent and just truly try to assess what's happening, then I can change how I see even that part of me. And that's the real victory because we then we move forward. And guess what happens to Pharaoh? We don't have to beat him up. He drowns back there in that junk that, right, that we thought was, was the only reality for us. 
Pharaoh drowns in what we thought for sure would kill us, would swamp us. It's a beautiful set of teachings. I, I want to give you one more thought and then I'll open it up for you to talk a little bit. Um, so Rami Shapiro also says, um, he says, we think fear is, is because we're afraid of the unknown, that so many people want to say the Israelites are terrified because they're moving into the unknown. They've never not been slaves. And Rami, so for Mark and all of you people in that business, um, Rami says, we can't be afraid of the unknown. If we don't know it, how can we be afraid of it? We're never afraid of the unknown. That's garbage. <laughs> We're afraid that the unknown future holds the same pain that we've experienced in the past. We project that onto the future. That's what we're afraid of. You can't be afraid of what you don't know. That's not what they're afraid of. They're afraid that the future is going to hold the same pain of the past that we've experienced in slavery. The part of us that are beat up slaves are always afraid the whip is coming. Even when things look good, the slave in us says that that can't be. I can't possibly enjoy this because I know the whip is coming. I know it. I've experienced it. I know what that feels like. And so we, we grip and we tighten and we resist trusting. We resist being fully in the now and in this experience and in this moment and in this enjoyment, God forbid, because we know the whip is coming. We have felt its bite before. And Rami says that's part of what God and Moshe, uh, that God is, is, and Moshe are, are addressing to the people is dealing with that fear. Because you can't move into a different future as long, right, as you're dragging that expectation of pain uh, and suffering with you. All right. So I want to I wanna let y'all talk now. But that means I need to put it on gallery view. All 45 screens of you. Oh, I love it. I, oh, I want to tell you, um, I, my teacher just had this most beautiful, beautiful um, midrash about Zoom and said uh, that she experiences looking at Zoom, all the boxes on Zoom as the choshen of the uh, breastplate of the high priest, that um, the breastplate of the high priest that had those, you know, little squares with a stone in the middle representing each one of the tribes, you know, was a reminder to the priest. And he wore it as a reminder that the people are with him, that it's his responsibility to serve these people. It's not about him. And so she said, she looks at the screen and sees the, the breastplate of the high priest in the squares on the screen, which I thought was such a beautiful, beautiful uh, teaching or image, whatever. All right, he wants to say something. Uh, the essence of what you've been saying today it could easily have been uh, taken from a seminar in a psychoanalytic institute. <laughs> Psychoanalysis began, the, the very first word that was psychoanalytic, I think, was Freud saying that hysterics suffer from reminiscences. Hysterics? <laughs> hysterics suffer from reminiscences. So the crazy in us comes the hysteria comes from remembering right getting this right remembering yeah. things that have happened right and that 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 that's what causes us to freak right. it's not it's not the, it's not the future it's not the phobic object it's the reminiscence right 
it's the memory of pain. It's the memory of humiliation or of suffering, yeah. right? Yeah, Julie? I once. Had, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I once had a supervisor who told me when I was utterly lost with something and didn't know what to do. He advised me. Uh, I thought brilliantly. He said, "Don't just do something. Sit there." <laughs> right. That's mindfulness practice in a nutshell. Yeah. Right. Um, Jim Lieberfarb says, unpack the fear. An acronym for fear is future events or false evidence appearing real. <laughs> right. Ain't that the truth? Right. Amy. It's, yeah. What what if um, the fear is that um, the pharaoh will start his own political party? <laughs> Then what do you do? In Florida. In Florida. <laughs> well, um, the reality is Pharaoh has a political party in Florida already, right? Yeah. That's what they're dealing with. Right. That's what they're, that's what the Israelites are responding to is the right. amount of power they think that party has and the way it has ruined their lives. Right. Yes. And that's what they're responding to. Right. Is they have all the power. They can make this happen. They can kill us. They can come after us. They, 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 they. Right. Mm -hmm. And so part of, yes, part of the message is, okay, you can do that all the day long and just consider yourselves helpless little citizens who have no power over the big party. You can do that. It doesn't get you anywhere. That's slavery. That is not building a responsible society based on the values that God gives them at Sinai. To do that, you have to address your fear. Stand still, shut up, assess, trust, and then move forward. You have to move forward. That's how they get to Sinai. That's how they get to the promised land. Not by going, there's nothing I can do. They're so powerful. <laughs> Just saying. All right, Judy, you it. From my own life, I have seen this in action. I remember Rabbi Rubin talking one time about how they had lost a cat and they could never have another cat because they couldn't deal with the fear of losing that one. Well, I have been married now four times. After my first husband died, I thought, never again. I can't deal with the pain. So I did it again and again and again. And I'm still unwilling to give up loving because of fear. Move forward. Right. Whether it's down the aisle again. No, no, but loving. You're not going there again, huh? Um, but right, so right, walking, walking into it again, and again, and again, as often as you get the chance. Right. But life is short. That, that's our choice, right? That's the choice before us. All right, Jim, and then Bubby. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, uh, just sharing a per my own personal story. Um. Uh, as it relates to this, I had, uh, when I graduated college in 1977, I immediately proceeded to go into my father and his partner's business, which was, uh, they were manufacturer and distributor of children's clothing accessory products. 
And I knew of my father of how he had a very volatile, you know, he was volatile. He uh, spoke in a very critical and condescending way. I mean, his intentions were good, but that was what I chose. And I worked in my father's business for 17 years and eventually you know, I had to, I knew very early on, it was not, I was not meant to be in that business, but I chose to stay on. And I realized like this was uh, like in the early nineties, I made a more concerted effort to get a job, you know, and eventually I landed one, which took me to California to San Francisco in 1994. And, you know, there was not going to be any guarantee as you know, I was good. I could have chose to stay in my father's business and be unhappy and frustrated, uh, or I could move on. And I needed to move on personally. Wow. And I also knew, by the same token, is that you know I wasn't going to have the security of working in another comp- You know, another company that you know I was going to have. Like I was living in, working in my father's business, feeling very miserable. And uh, that was a, a you and that was that happened. I was 39 years old when that happened, you know, and uh, I, I needed to do that. You know, it was it was my quote unquote personal exodus that I needed to, you know, uh, detach and, you know, create some space between my father and I. And as what happened is, you know, he died in, in 2003, but allowing the space of you know, uh, of to uh, have more compassion for him, you know. So uh, I just wanted to share, you know, sort of my personal story because it rings the theme of of this passage of the of the Torah and how you, you know, uh, explained it. Uh, you know, I, I hold that, you know, it, it means a lot. To, it's a, a personal for me. Thank you. And um, right, because he was Pharaoh as long as you were under his you know, thumb and in his, and his realm that was so hard, right. Then, then he's Pharaoh. And that's, that's a lot of power that people have, right. When, when, when we give it over and when we stay and um, it took you, you know, walking, walking across that (laughs) Yabasha, (laughs) that little strip of dry ground, you know, and then you can assess from a distance. He's just a guy. Pharaoh's really just a guy. Right. And and leader, you know, authority doesn't have to make one bad. Power doesn't have to make one bad. Usually it's suffering that makes them use power in that way. They're broken. They're broken people who use their authority and use their power to be tyrants. And, you know, it's only in our distance from the pain that they can inflict that sometimes we're able to hold them with some compassion and say, wow, to choose to use power like that you know, something's got to be wrong there. It's not here. Something's wrong there. And I can maybe hold that with some Rahmanus, with some compassion, only from a distance, only from a place where we can't be hurt, right? By, mm-hmm. by that anymore. Can, can we usually do that? Bubby, good morning. Good morning. He just gave the perfect example of what I was going to say, which is, To me, this Torah portion is like the life lesson, whether you're talking about your family, your relationships with your friends, or if you're 
working in an organization. I mean, it's it's so the universe that universality of it is so profound and it's interesting to hear people relate it to you know specifics in their own life and I appreciate their sharing yes it the universality is part of what blows me away is like you know like all of us all of us have multiple memories, stories, examples, right? That we could bring to this moment. I love that. I think it's why it's one of my favorite scenes in Torah mm-hmm. is because it's it's so raw and wise and true and scary. And it's like, wait, what? I have to take responsibility? Like, you know, it's like, what? Can I just complain that it's not my fault? They did it. They did it. Pharaoh did it. The Egyptians did it, right? I'm the victim, right? Right. It's, it's so great. Like on so many levels, it's just so great. And I also love um, Rami Shapiro. He's, he's one of my favorite commentators on this, as you can tell. He also says, you know, that he's, that God says to Moshe, Daber speak to the people, talk to them. Don't yell, talk to them. Don't cajole, just talk to them and and let them move forward. Don't make them don't push them from behind. Don't drag them. It's not on you. Speak to them. Just talk to them. And they have to do it. They have to move forward. As long as Moshe takes it on himself, this is, project is going to fail, which um, I think is so true as well. Speak. Don't argue. Speak. Don't yell. Speak. Don't beg. <laughs> Tell them their fear is natural, and then they have to be there uh, and, and deal with it anyway. Sarah Moskowitz. I think we're being asked to really be with our whole selves in the present. And the example that comes to me right now is the example of the people in the Warsaw Ghetto who, after years of being abused and abandoned, decided to fight They stood in the present situation and mustered their new ambition to fight, and that's what they did. And I think that's a wonderful example of getting out of your old fears, getting out of old experiences, and deciding to take a new stance. Thank you, Sarah. And, and, and could there be a more real experience of being powerless? Yeah. Right? Living as Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto under the Nazis? Yeah. Right? It's, it's, I mean, there, what, what could be a more real and justifiable experience if we don't have power? They didn't. And they were crushed. Right? They stood and they fought because they chose Yes, we may be powerless. They cannot take our real power. No one can do that. Only we can give that away. But they fought fought longer than anybody else. Yep. Yep. Because they found in themselves. They didn't give their power away, even though they had none. Right. That's the beauty. I think that you're talking about the ability to no matter what's going on. And there's not a better example of it than that. 
no matter what's going on, to be able to to hold on to one's dignity and one's own vision of what one will fight for and die for and not let anyone else define that. Alexandra wrote in the chat that um, fear, her own fears are her Pharaoh, right? <laughs> right? And that it's always about what do we do with our own fears and fill in the blank of what those are. Cause they're pretty powerful often, aren't they? Right. It's really the ones that come from within that are so, so effective at derailing us. <laughs> I'm not good enough, right? Whatever it is, like we're, um, and so she said it, like Victor Frankl writes about is, you know, we can only choose how to respond to that and that cultivating, I would use the language, cultivating a life of spiritual maturity and responsibility is about seeing that, owning them when they come up saying, yeah, that'd be Pharaoh. (laughs) There he is again, right? And then deciding what we want to do with that. Amy? Yes, you know, when Moses stands at the water's edge, it is not him who walks into the water. It is somebody else. And if we're working psychologically, there's, there is an extension of us that does have courage. So the fear is holding us back. But there's this little part that is so enormous and so powerful that does break through and lead us through into the, um, into the, you know, into the water and into the breakthrough. Nice. And um, also, God is—it's the—it's the part of us that is—that is the courage. It's the relational part of us. It's the part of us that we hear in our heads saying, "Have courage." It's the hand that reaches out to us, the invisible hand that reaches out to us, and says, "You can do it. You can do it like a mother does to a child that's starting to walk." So there's something extraordinarily um, psychological about the whole uh, story. Beautiful. Beautiful, Anin. Thank you. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of midrash that we didn't do today. We've done it in years past, and we'll do it again when we get back to this, um, three years from now. But um, we, we've talked a lot about th- there's so much midrash that we didn't look at today that's about that moment of going in. Who goes in? Right. The very famous people are often shocked that there's nothing about Nachshon here. Right. It's like because they're sure it's in the Bible because it's so famous. Right. It's not in the Bible. It's Midrash. But there's so much Midrash written about who goes in. Right. And descriptions of the water comes to here. The water comes to here. The water. Right. Very powerful images for the rabbis of who goes in. You're right. It's not Moshe. It's not the strong one, the leader, the one that talks to God all the time and has the answers. That's not who goes in, in our story. And nowhere in the Midrash is it Moshe who goes in, which is fascinating, right? Because it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's some other smaller, little Nebisha guy, Nachshon ben Aminadav. There's one Midrash that says the men are all fighting about who should go in first and the women lock arms after a while and just start walking forward until they push all the men into the sea and then the waters part. Right. So it's, there's so many brilliant midrashim about that moment of entry and who enters. And yeah, I think we could have a whole discussion on um, what each of those midrashim says about which part of us is the one, right. That, that holds us up and that allows, that encourages us to go into the water. That's great. Um, so I want to close with, uh, so I'm going to send you all all y'all, I'm going to send you a link 
to Rabbi Michael Strassfeld's weekly Torah commentary because he always includes a nigun and what the nigun uh, is associated with, like what verse, and then he gives a commentary and he brings some other stuff. It's just great. It's just a little Torah magazine on every Parsha. It's awesome. Um, and so I want to share with you um, from his uh, Torah thing on this Parsha. He, he didn't write this. Uh, it's Franz Rosenzweig, but it's on Michael Strassfeld's uh, page on this Parsha. Each of us can only seize by the scruff whoever happens to be closest to us in the mire. This is the neighbor the Bible speaks of. And the miraculous thing is that although each of us stands in the mire ourself, we can each pull out our neighbor or at least keep him from drowning. None of us has solid ground under our feet. Each of us is only held up by the neighborly hand grasping us by the scruff. Sorry, plural. Neighboring hands grasping us by the scruff. With the result that we are each held up by the next one and often, indeed most of the time, hold each other up mutually. All this mutual upholding, a physical impossibility, becomes possible only because the great hand from above supports all these holding human hands by their wrists. It is this and not some non-existent solid ground under one's feet that enables all the human hands to hold and to help. There is no such thing as standing. There is only being held up. So um, I will leave you with the words of Franz Rosenzweig as quoted by Rabbi Michael Strassfeld in response to this moment. And I just love that image of we're holding each other up in the muck and the mire, which is really not possible. And it's only possible because of the hand, the great hand above holding all of us by the wrists. So I, you know, the image is for me is, you know, God holding each one of us up by the wrist and we're able to grab the scruff of the neck of our neighbor and hold them up and keep them from sinking. Um, and that that's happening everywhere all the time. And that's the only way we're able to, to not drown is that we hold one another up. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.